Ads, schmads. If you don't want ads, that's okay. Choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And hey, presto, no ads. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time and uh, John and I have just spent the last half hour listening to a fellow who could only be described, John, in fairness, as the Che Guevara of the right wing. Yes. Javier Millet, the new president of Argentina and his speech at Davos, which has gone viral online. Not particularly well covered, it must be said in, as they would say, the mainstream media, but it's actually a fascinating speech. But the thing about it is, is that... By the way, John, uh, John is fuming about this speech. <laughs> he's, shall we say that Javier wouldn't be my type. Not your cup of tea. He looks, but, he looks like a cross between Joseph Schumpeter and Lemmy from Motorhead. <laughs> With a bit of Les Dawson thrown in. And J.P.R. Williams, the rugby player. Yeah, yeah it's the, the big chops. Yeah, 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 the big yeah, chops yeah. on him. But the thing is, we kind of, when he was elected before Christmas, yeah. we were a little bit surprised, as was everybody. Because he's the tantric sex expert. And, and he talks to his dog. And his dog talk, told him to run all for this kind of, Yeah, And he's an absolute loon. So we thought. But he came to Davos and he gives this speech. And everyone's really impressed. Well, it's an interesting thing. So he comes to Davos, right? Mm. And as you know, I've been to Davos. I've, go on, tell us about it, Dave. I've been, I've only been once and I wouldn't go again, right? But I went to get this bloody award, which was barred. great. And I got it, it for barred. free. I got it for free, you know, because it's like 25 grand to go to Davos. 25 grand to for go. Ticket. To go for the week or the four days, right? That's okay. more expensive than an electric picnic. That is much, exactly, exactly. And the tents are less good than an electric picnic. The camping is less good, right? Yeah. So I went years and years ago. And ironically, the person who I met there is actually Martin Lousteau, who's probably Javier Millet's nemesis in Argentina, because Martin is now the head of the left or centre-left coalition in Argentina. He's also the deputy head of the Senate, of which Millet's party are in. So those guys know each other. So there's a lot to talk. That's the kind of irony about all this Argentinian stuff. But I mean, Davos is very strange, right? And what is fascinating now is that of course, amongst the libertarian, I'm like a Davos shrill. That's what they call you, right? Yeah, yeah, You're yeah. part of the globalist elitist group. And now here, the Mr. Libertarian is down at Davos as well. So I don't know, they're going to have to get their heads around that, that their, their hero is at Davos. But what is fascinating, John, is it definitely is a gathering of unbelievably rich 
corporate people, mm. politicians, very, very well-placed journalists, very, very well-placed media people. So it, it really is, if you want to see a conspiracy and that's in your head, yeah. you can definitely... But Leo was, was hobnobbing around there. Of course Leo was hobnobbing. And again, the reason that he's probably going there, the likes of, of Leo, is that, you know, you do business eventually with people you know, mm. right? So if... Ireland is in the business of attracting in foreign investment. Well, then maybe, isn't it better to go to Davos and meet those players in one place over four or five days yeah. than be traveling yeah, yeah, around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, ironically, it's exactly the same reason Malay went there. So Malay didn't go to Davos because he wanted the crack and wanted to say, oh, I, I want to go yodeling in the Alps <laughs> for the weekend. He went there to meet the movers and shakers of the and world. tear strips off them. And tear strips off them, right? So he goes into Davos and he gives this speech which in effect is a rallying call for libertarianism. And it identifies socialism as the problem. But the interesting thing about Davos is Davos, he's talking about entrepreneurs. Davos is not about entrepreneurs. Davos is corporate man. Yeah. So Davos man, yeah, that creature yeah. that people used to take the piss out of, is basically a corporatist. He's somebody, he and she, is somebody who's got to the very top of a corporatist infrastructure, yeah. whether it's a politician, whether it's the head of a big, big company, whether it's a very, very well-placed media commentator at the top of the head of a very big media company. So mm. it's very corporatist, right? And what Malay went in there, I think knowing that it's very corporatist, and started talking about socialism. Yeah. And the underlying, I think, message was, you know, this idea of socialism for the rich. Yeah. You know, that basically a lot of people believe that the elite is basically when you get to the top, you become more socialist. You use your network. You actually throw barriers up to other people. You don't want these people with new ideas. That basically you want your ideas and nothing more. As I've always said, a very, very good sell indicator for a stock, if you're investing in the stock market, is when the chief executives appears at Davos and starts talking about the environment. Then you know they've lost the plot completely. <laughs> and the actual the stock or whatever they own yeah, is yeah, going to yeah. go. But so we're sitting having a cup of tea and John was fuming, having gripes, saying, I don't believe this. I'm not having it. I was thumping the table. Look, we have a lot to talk about in this because it is a kind of a clash of ideologies. Yeah. But one thing's for sure, you know, he is the the purest libertarian. Yeah. And he was directing all his bile and his anger. Actually, I'll let him list them off. Whether they openly declare themselves as communists, fascists, Nazis, socialists, social democrats, national socialists, Christian democrats, Keynesians, neo-Keynesians, progressives, populists, nationalists, or globalists. In the end, there are no substantive differences. Okay, so there you have, you have a list. Nazis, communists, <laughs> social democrats, Christian democrats, the whole thing. But okay, what is fascinating, and the reason this speech is important is not because of who delivered it. It's actually because it frames a lot of politics at the moment. So if you're sitting and you're our age, it's very easy to be a centrist, right? Yeah. You've got a stake in society. You own your own house. Your career is okay. Your family are okay. I just want everyone to get on. Right, okay, but you have a stake, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. The Rodney King of podcasting, that's who you are, right? <laughs> but what Malay is saying, if you're younger and you're thinking, hold on a second, I don't understand what's going on. Playing the centrist game isn't working for me. Mm. I'm 30. I don't have a house. I, I 
don't have a partner, for example. I'm kind of floating around. I'm in a precarious life. My job is okay, but my wages don't even cover my rent. Yeah, and the and threat looking, of AI might, might take back, my job. Yeah, and you're looking back at our generation and say, hold on a second, you guys have everything and you're now taking the drawbridge up and you're actually saying, suck it up, right? Yeah. And that generation, Gen Z and the younger millennials, are clearly looking for a different answer. On the left, it's very, very well rehearsed. But on what you call the libertarian right, it's something that people are looking at and saying, hold on a second, I'm mm. interested in this. Which is why, for example, this speech has blown up online. Yeah. And online is where you see this. So what I want to do is I want to look at this speech, don't give it too much prominence over and above what it is, but use it as a framework to understand politics, economics, and the geopolitical place we are ahead of an election year. Mm. And the fact that this message is incredibly attractive to a lot of people. And those people are being dismissed. Those people are being besmirched and saying, you know, you guys are extremists. But actually, it is a movement. And what he said, so just to give you a sense of the speech, right? You, the little clip there you gave was him having to go at everybody. Yeah. But his basic idea is, if you look at the history of economics, and if you look at the history of humanity, what you see is income per head, GDP per head, which is, albeit a flawed barometer, it's a barometer of wealth, okay? Nothing happened for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So despite lots and lots of changes in culture, lots and lots of changes. So we're talking about the Egyptians, I'm talking about the Sumerians, I'm talking about the Greeks, mm. talking about the Romans. Despite those moments of great cultural flourishing, on average, the wealth of the average human stagnated dramatically over thousands of years. Yeah. And then what Millet talks about is, at a certain stage, what we would regard as the Industrial Revolution, or even prior to that, mm. very suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, the global economy begins to grow and income per head takes off. Now, if you look at the graph, yeah, this is what he talked about in the speech. He talked about it as a hockey stick. Yeah. So if you think about the hockey, a hockey stick, you've got That's basically- an ice hockey stick, An ice way. hockey, yeah yeah, 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 an ice hockey stick. So our hockey sticks have the little hook, but the yeah. ice hockey stick. So you've got a flat line and then it zooms upwards, yeah. right? Yeah. And the, his idea is, why is this? What happened? And he says, what happened was that free market capitalism became the norm in the early 19th century, consistent with or co-evolving with this unbelievable growth in GDP per head. Mm. And it hasn't stopped. And mm. what he says is that the countries that adopted free market capitalism, almost libertarianism, libertarianism is, is all about basically all you've got to do is protect property rights, mm. protect free trade, and let people do their thing and the economy will take off. Now, this is, I don't believe is an accurate description of what happened, but it doesn't matter. This is his idea. And he's saying is, when you interfere with that, economies stagnate. And of course, his opinion is as an Argentinian. Now, I'm going to tell you something very interesting. Do you remember I met the Pope a couple of years ago? Remember yeah. I told you about the yeah, Pope, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. very unusual. And it's quite a long conversation. In with his gaff. In his gaff. Yeah. In his gaff in the Vatican, right? And, I had a long, and it was a really, really fascinating discussion because it's the Pope. Right? He's the leader of the biggest religion mm. in the world. He's this, also, this, this is the current Pope. Current Pope. He's also yeah. Argentinian. And we chatted away. And one thing he did say about Europe, he was talking about Argentina. Now, the Pope's 
parents, like Millet's parents, are Italians, right? Yeah. So the vast majority of Argentinians come from the Italian peninsula because that's where most people emigrated from Italy to Argentina. Mm. And we were talking about the world and he was talking about poverty and inequality and the role of religion. And it was like, you know, when you have an audience with the Pope, you just sit back and listen. Yeah. And just let him talk. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was really amazing. But he did say something quite interesting. He said, as an Argentinian, as the Pope said, as an Argentinian, I'm worried that what infected us might infect you in Europe. And what he was saying was he was looking at the European economy, looking at European politics, looking at European society, looking at European culture. And he was worried that it would stagnate like Argentina. Because Argentina is the big warning from history yeah, of what happens to a very, very, very strong country. How, despite having a highly educated immigrant population, despite having social infrastructure, which was amongst the best in Latin America. Mm-hmm. So for example, Uruguay, the country beside it was known as the Switzerland of Latin America because Argentina and Uruguay were so wealthy, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It had Amazing growth rates. Fourth richest country in the world at one stage. It had extraordinary trade links, particularly with Europe. And what you had was an economy that was growing, sucking in immigrants all the time, right? Yeah. And the Pope said exactly what Malay is saying. He said, watch us, because what happened to us can happen elsewhere. Now, the Pope has a very, very different interpretation of what happened. Yeah. But that's where Malay's starting point is, is that we totally messed up. And we messed up, he believes, because we became more socialist. And as we became more socialist, the economy went into a tailspin. And what you see is the country, Argentina, goes from being the fourth richest country in the world to the hundredth richest. And what, what was the, that's Malay's view. And what's, what was the Pope's view? The Pope's view was much more cultural. It was much more, look, Argentina has gone backwards. Argentina has suffered emigration, suffered capital flight. And I think he was suggesting, well, there's a lot in Argentina. There's a lot of anti-American feeling in Argentina, anti-gringo feeling. They feel the Americans have interfered with them all the time. Mm-hmm. That's a slightly left. I mean, the Pope would be left of center. Yeah. Christian, yeah, well, Christian uh, left. Absolutely. You yeah, know, yeah. Catholic left. But he was just saying that, you know, what happened in Argentina is a slow, gradual, relentless default to underperformance. And he was worried that certain European countries, particularly Italy, we're going that way. You know, that basically the Italian economy hasn't grown for a long time. Yeah. And Italian, I mean, if you look in Ireland, Italian kids are here all the time. Young Italians are here looking for work because they can't get them in Italy. There's no minimum wage in Italy. There's lots of things in Italy that don't actually protect people on the outside. And our conversation, do you remember about Italy during the summer, yeah. was basically as an old gerontocracy, which I love that word, which is yeah. basically a democracy run by old people, yeah. was basically strangling the life out of Italy. So yeah. that's, that's the thing. But let's and, go back. And it was all the kids leaving the small towns. And then one of the big problems in Italy as well was also the inheritance. The inheritance and, and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, and the concentration of wealth. Concentration. Yeah. So let's go back to Millet, right? So what Millet is talking about is he's saying that the only system that delivered successive economic growth empirically evidenced is what he would describe as free market capitalism. Yeah. And once you interfere with that, you begin the process of degeneration. 
And then he focuses on economists and he says, neoclassical economists, who yeah. are basically the economics that most people learn, have spent their entire life looking at what he would regard as market failure and rather trying to identify areas where the free market doesn't work and fix them. And the more they identify areas the free market doesn't work and try to fix them, the more interference the state has, the more bureaucratic the system becomes, the more, as you say, parasitical the system becomes. And he identifies bureaucrats and civil servants and the state as parasitical. And then he goes on to say that basically the reason he thinks that is that all taxes are coercive. Yes. Right? Yes. That basically nobody pays tax willingly. It's always coerced out of you. If you're PAYE, it's just taken out of your salary. Yeah. If you work for yourself, you'll end up in prison if you don't pay tax. So he's saying it's a coercive system. Which is he and it feeds the state. And the state is this sort of kind of giant vampire squid sucking in all the energy of these independent entrepreneurs and rugged individualists. And his basic idea, his, his way out is less state, less taxes, that he describes as more freedom, yeah. more liberty. This is his big obsession. And Bob's your uncle, the economy will thrive because entrepreneurs will make things happen. Yeah. Right? So he's a little bit Schumpeterian in his worldview, but Schumpeter was a much more complex thinker, I think. When he was talking about that, that was the point when I was banging the table <laughs> yes. and spilling my tea. But what he actually said as well was, and maybe it can explain this, is that what he said was a market failure is a contradiction in terms. Yeah. And there's no such thing as market failure. Well, I mean, that's, that's I don't think, stands up. So the best example of market failure, John, is the environment, right? So economics cannot price pollution, right? Mm. So if, for example, you have a factory belching out all sorts of noxious gases, right? The market can't capture that, right? There's no way the price system can capture that. Take, for example, one of the great Tommy Tiernan sketches I saw years ago was talking about Irish environmental policy. Right. And it came down to a little expression, fuck it in the river. <laughs> so he was talking about rivers around Ireland with washing machines in them, old Ford Fiestas, yeah. Ford Capris in them, right? Fuck it in the river, right? So basically, in, think about the environment, right? The environment is a public good that needs to be protected by legislation. Yeah. Why? Because the economy doesn't price in environmental degradation. So if a factory is belching out smoke and polluting, the factory doesn't actually pay. We all pay yeah. through, for example, Absolutely. a higher health budget because yeah. of respiratory illnesses, right? So that is market failure. Yeah. Libertarians don't believe that exists, right? They don't believe that that is a fair point. What they believe is that... But I mean, can, they, they can see, like, for fisheries is a great example of that as well. Fisheries. When you overfish, you end up with... With, with no fish. With no fish. And exactly. it's really simple. You can see that. You well, know? so basically what you have is that you have the world's precious resources, which are finite, mm -hmm. unless, of course, we can make a bigger world. And the last time I checked, that's kind of hard, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And the consumption of 8 billion, soon to be 8 billion people. Now... One is an irresistible force, that is consumption. One is an immutable object, that is a finite resource. They smash against each other. So the idea is that legislation, environmental ideas need to try and protect the world. Libertarians don't get that. And in fairness to them, in fairness to them, in other areas, they're more, I think they're, they're more persuasive, right? They're yeah. more persuasive in the idea that we know that 
innovation drives economic growth. Mm. We know that innovation comes from this amazing machine between our ears called the human brain. Yeah. We know that if innovation is given free reign and if entrepreneurs and innovators are allowed to actually make profit, that they'll go and do their thing. So we yeah. know that. And we've seen that in many, many countries. But the point is the politics of it is interesting. What he's saying is there is an alternative to centrism, to left of center politics. And it's not extreme left. It's this slightly extreme right idea. And, and many, many people are persuaded by this. How can you be slightly extreme? <laughs> <laughs> okay, extreme, extreme, right? But, no, but let me ask you a question then. I and, mean, and, and frame it in the context of younger people listening. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. But when he talks about tax and it being coerced from people, that nobody pays tax, when, that's that's fair enough. But, but tax also pays for... You know, Everything. your healthcare, your your police, your education that feeds innovation. You're absolutely right. So basically what you have is that the dilemma for all the libertarians is the fact that although in rhetorical terms, it's very easy to identify areas where the state pisses you off. Mm. And you say, if it wasn't for the state, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. but if, if it wasn't for the state, there'd be no education service here. There'd be no health service here. There'd be no welfare here. Now, libertarians believe this is all wrong. Right. That welfare is wrong, that free education is wrong, that basically you go out and you pay for it. And if you pay for your education, you'll use it much more effectively because you've already paid for it. But that might well be true. It might well be true. It might but, well be but, true. But, but you're leaving a whole load of people behind as well. Or what they would say is that if you're really into education, you'll pay for it. So, I mean, you'll pay for it and you mm. won't pay for other things. So they've got this very, very individualistic worldview. Yeah. But the reason it's appealing to people is because the center view is not delivering basic products, basic conditions to lots and lots of people. In this country, it's probably most evident in the housing market, yeah. but yeah, it's yeah. evident in lots of other places too. And there's also a sense that at the very top, what you have is more of a cabal and the people who are at the very, very top are not necessarily people who've got there through their own efforts, but they're people who've got there through their own networks, through pull, scratching backs. And when they get to the very top, whether it's academia or media or politics or the corporate world, right, they kind of hang out together and they make laws for themselves. Yeah, yeah. So it's ironic, it's what, it's what uh, Tony Benn said to me, who's again, it's interesting with the extreme right and the extreme left yeah. that kind of come together. Yeah, yeah. He said to me once when I interviewed him years and years ago, he was, he was quite well on and he said to me, he was chatting away and he was saying, oh, you're, you're quite young to be a presenter of this current affairs show. And I was, yeah, whatever. And he said, uh, the old and the young have one thing in common. And I said, what's that? He says, we're both bullied by the middle-aged, which I thought was a really interesting point. And he says, the middle-aged make policies for themselves. So for example, the obsession with middle-aged people is now how we decide policy to ensure our pensions, right? Yeah. So they suck up resources from the state to pay for their pensions. But actually the problem in Ireland isn't pensions. The problem is actually young people not having enough money. Yeah. And so at some stage, young people are going to look for a policy that says to the baby boomers in our generation, you know, fuck you. Yeah. Right? We're gonna we're gonna tax your houses. We're gonna tax your pensions. 
We're not going to give you this free lunch. You guys are set. We've got the problem. And I think Malay. But have we not worked for this? But <laughs> which, is the which, is, which is the essential yeah. view. But We've worked all our lives for this. We've but you know, up our if you're 21, you're like, yeah, you worked all your lives and you had a good life. Yeah. It's not my responsibility to look after you. So you have these sort of demographic, social, political cleavages mm. going on. And people like Millie are part of a new movement. And it's very, very easy to dismiss this as a fellow with a chainsaw yeah, who looks yeah. like Lemmy. But he's appealing to something deep in society. And what he's saying is Argentina is two generations ahead of the rest of you. We've messed up so badly, but what happened in Argentina is coming for you if you continue to be socialist. And people like me are the consequence of underperformance. And I think that is worth discussing over the course of a few podcasts, John. Okay, well, is it coming for us? Is it really coming for us? Let's talk about that after this. Okay. 
increased borrowing, we're kind of borrowing to stay ahead, a lack of innovation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And he squarely puts the blame of that at the state. And he says, you have to break down the state in order to re-energize, reinvigorate, refloat the economies. Yeah. And if you don't, you're going to get chaos. Now, what he's probably looking around at, he's looking around at Le Pen in France, he's looking at Maloney in Italy, he's looking at the Brexit shambles in the UK, he's looking at the alternative for Deutschland, and he's saying, it's all happening. Yeah, you don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't need me to tell you. And where that's taking you, now, the interesting thing is that Maloney, Le Pen, the alternative for Deutschland, all believe in the big state. And ironically, too, a lot of Brexiteers believe in the big state, right? So Boris okay. Johnson's idea was the red wall, the big state is going to pick these industries that are going to work for Britain. He is offering a totally different idea. He's saying dismantle the state. So if you listen to it's French, a bit more like Trump. Yeah, if you listen to, but again, when Trump came in, he didn't dismantle the state at all. He gave it to his mates. Just, well, yes. He just gave yeah, all the yeah, yeah. So, That's because so, he's just plain, simply corrupt. But anyway, that's a, is, another is, story. He's plain and corrupt. But So what he's saying is the European answer to economic degradation is more state. So if you listen to voters of the alternative for Deutschland or Le Pen or Maloney, they want the state to protect them, mm. right? What he's saying is this will just accelerate the downturn. And what you need is to get rid of the state and the world will flourish now. But as you've pointed out, you get rid of the state, you get rid of all the safety nets that we need. Yeah. That was just called a social welfare system and a social democratic system. But what I'm saying is he is touching a nerve and we would be wrong to dismiss it as simply the rantings of a man with a chainsaw. Mm. It is a deep alternative which has been embraced by lots of people which is why this speech has had do you think of it's views. workable though mac is is this i mean he's talking about you know more state equals more poverty so he wants less state he wants the individual it's a, it's back to thatcherism you know there is no such thing as society only the individual it's yeah well that's that comes from a fellow called keith joseph and keith joseph was thatcher's main policy advisor, and he was a significant discipline of Frederick Hayek. Right. Hayek wrote this book, The Road to Serfdom. And The Road to Serfdom is the Bible of all these guys. And Hayek had this basic view. He was, again, do you remember we talked about Austria and the secessionist painting yeah. movement, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. I know it sounds weird, but it all comes from this idea of modernism, right? So the secessionist painting movement and Egon Schella and all these sort of characters, you know, Gustav Klimt, it's all about reworking traditional forms, mm. right? And saying, out with tradition, we'll do modern stuff. And again, what you forget in Austria was that Austria suffered the collapse of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, which yeah. was a total destruction of what had gone before. They had hyperinflation, like the Germans in the 20s. They produced Hitler, they produced all sorts of strange characters. And out of that came this very anti-state idea. So Hayek saw Nazism and socialism as being two sides of the same coin, right. all based on a big, big state. The Nazis took it down an ethnocentric, eugenics, Holocaust way. The socialists took it down in Russia, various other ways. Yeah, yeah. So Hayek, they all come from this trauma and Malik comes from trauma. This is what we've got to understand, yeah, right? Yeah. And trauma is an extraordinary emotional 
propulsion mechanism which changes people's worldview that if you have been traumatized in your youth, as Hayek and Schumpeter were, you tend to see everything through the lens of that trauma. I think it's fair to say Malay, as an Argentinian, has also been traumatized. So once you're traumatized, what you do is you've tried to find alternatives. One, to explain your trauma, and two, as a way out. And what he's saying is this is the way out. Now, I think we should do a couple of podcasts on this because I think it's actually worth doing. Yeah, yeah. Because I believe that in this election year, this type of thinking, this type of politics is going to be very appealing to people who feel left behind. Mm. And in Ireland, you might not say it's traumatic, but if you're in your 20s and you can't move out and you can't find a gaff and you can't settle down, you can't grow up and you can't actually, that process of being an adult, and you look at your parents' generation and say, you guys have everything. We don't have that. It's a type of trauma. And you react to that by saying, hold on a second, there's a new political model. Mm. So I think we'll break it down. And I think we should start in the historical idea. And we start that next week, I think, which is that Malay makes the point that for hundreds of years, now there is, believe it or not, John, GDP data. It's called the Madison Index. I know this will really interest you. Which goes back (laughs) thousands of years, right? Well, it goes back to the Romans, right? And it shows... GDP growth per head, which is oh, fascinating. Yes. It's yeah, a fascinating yeah, yeah, yeah. time series. Wow. Right? And what he's saying is, let's well, so we'll look at this, which is nothing happens until about what we would have called the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. And then suddenly the world takes off. Yeah. So we have to explain, why did that happen? And the interesting thing is, why did the Industrial Revolution and the consequential increase in GDP per head, why did it happen, number one? Mm-hmm. Why did it happen where it did? And why did it happen when it did? Because if you can answer those questions, you can begin to put this jigsaw together of what propels economic growth, which is the ever-present question of economics. So notebooks at the ready. So we're going to start that from next week. We're going to start that from next week. We might even have an exam at the end of the the month. Oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) He's beginning to panic. We'll talk to you Thursday. Freedom, damn it. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.